Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of Podcast 360, your go-to resource for medical news and clinical updates. I'm your moderator, Amanda Balby, with Consultant 360 Specialty Network. Gastroesophageal reflux disease, or GERD, affects millions of people worldwide. One of the most prominent challenges in clinical practice has been around the treatment of GERD and the possible long-term effects of proton pump inhibitor use, or PPIs. Here with us today to clear up some confusion is Dr. Jonathan Aviv, who is the Clinical Director of the Voice and Swallowing Center at ENT and Allergy Associates in New York City and Clinical Professor of Otolaryngology in the Department of Otolaryngology at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. He is also the author of The Acid Watcher Diet, a 28-day reflux prevention and healing program. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Aviv. To start, what is the gold standard of treatment for GERD? That's a great question because I don't think there is a gold standard. Today, diet and lifestyle become the gold standard. We are using pharmaceutical agents less and less than we ever have before. Our patients are demanding it. What we read in the lay press as well as the scientific literature about some of the pharmaceutical agents are less than stellar. So we're trying to develop a standard, but the standard will shift depending on what the patient's symptoms are. And that's really the driver of today's treatment of reflux disease. What is the patient complaining of? Because very often people come in and they say, I have reflux. And I say, oh, you, you have heartburn? No, 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 I, I don't have heartburn. I'm just hoarse and I'm coughing. So they're already saying they have reflux, which is a medical diagnosis, yet their symptoms have nothing to do with the gastrointestinal tract. So very, very difficult to establish a gold standard when the symptoms are what drives treatment. So if we were forced to say what's the gold standard today, I would say diet and lifestyle management is the gold standard. Uh, if you want to go to silver, bronze, aluminum foil, and way down to paper, rocks, and scissors, uh, then you're going to bring in pharmaceuticals, supplements, etc. But right now, the gold standard for treatment of reflux disease is number one, symptom-driven, and then number two, diet and lifestyle-based. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. When you said they think they have reflux disease, but they really don't have the clinical symptoms, uh, something that just came to mind is that oftentimes GERD is misdiagnosed as asthma or vice versa. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, sure. So now's the time and right at the top of this uh, discussion to talk about how this all happens. How, how can a lung problem be uh, diagnosed or misdiagnosed as, as really reflux disease? How does this all happen? And this is how it happens. There's an enzyme in the stomach called pepsin, P-E-P-S-I-N. We learned about it in medical school, and then uh, we forgot about it. But what is pepsin? Pepsin breaks down protein 
in an acidic environment. It lives in the stomach. The stomach is very acidic. It's pH 2. Pepsin gets maximally activated below pH 4. It's a logarithmic scale, 2 being 100 times more acidic than something pH 4. But here's the rub. Pepsin can float. It can float out of the stomach into the esophagus, into the lungs, into the throat, into the vocal cords, into the mouth, the teeth, the sinuses, the middle ear spaces. And when you eat or drink something less than pH 4, what you eat or drink starts eating you. So how does this work? Um, we all think of classic gastroesophageal reflux disease as the reflux of stomach acid upwards. So the adjacent organ first would be esophagus. If you keep going up, you can get the trachea, which leads to the lungs. And that's perhaps how, quote-unquote, asthma-type symptoms can come from reflux disease. But what's completely ignored is the acidity of what you put in your mouth. Almost all therapies for reflux disease are designed from the stomach side to actually prevent or deacidify or neutralize what's coming up from the stomach. What most people ignore, and when I explain how this happens, it's going to make a lot of sense. What most people ignore is the acidity of what you put in your mouth. And why is that ignored? Two simple reasons. One, the clinicians rarely ask patients what they eat, and the corollary, patients rarely tell physicians or their clinicians what they eat. So it's a tower of bobble. No one's asking, no one's telling. It's a version of don't ask, don't tell. Well, when you don't ask and don't tell, then you can't make the diagnosis and you end up getting treatments for years and years for symptoms that never go away because you're not going after the problem. And I'll give a very, very simple example. As it turns out, there are only six foods, not 6,000, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, six foods that are less than pH four. Uh, I call them the dirty half dozen, and I write, the, write about them in my book, The Acid Watcher Diet, and in its follow-up cookbook, The Acid Watcher Cookbook. What are the six? I divide them up into two unhealthies and four healthies. The unhealthies, meaning no nutritional benefit and no offense to what you're about to hear for those folks that love these things, flavored beverages in a can or a bottle like sodas, including diet sodas, and then bottled iced teas. Brewed iced tea is different, but bottled iced teas are extremely acidic. They're all less than pH 4. Same thing with any flavored beverage in a can or a bottle, and there are no health benefits. By the way, things like Hawaiian punch, things like sports drinks, they all fall in that category. I don't care if we're told it's natural, unnatural, made from wonderful stuff, made from bad stuff. It's acidic. It's a law. It's called Title 21, which came about in the mid-70s. So that's those two. The four healthies are citrus, tomato sauce, not tomato, vinegar, and wine. Citrus is lemon, lime, orange, grapefruit, pineapple. So how does it work? You get up in the morning, 
you have a glass of fresh OJ. For lunch, you'll have a salad with a little balsamic or Italian dressing. For dinner, you'll have a slice of pizza. You'll have a little marinara sauce. Uh, you'll have a couple glasses of wine, maybe a little chocolate dessert. You'll hit the sack 90 minutes later, and everything's haywire. Because those four acidic things that are healthy, citrus, tomato sauce, vinegar, and wine, will activate and release tissue-bound pepsin that's sitting in the mouth, in the throat. It will cause swelling of those areas, and you will see your doctor because you're hoarse or coughing, and they'll say, oh, it's your allergies, or oh, it's, it's reflux, and they'll start giving you medications that reduce acid production from the stomach side, right? But the problem is on the way in, right? All the proton pump inhibitor in the world, all the H2 blockers in the world are not going to alter or neutralize the acidity of a vinegar or a lemon juice. And that's where the problems happen. It happens right in front of us because, again, look, you're a patient, I'm a patient. When do our doctors ask us what we eat and drink? Almost never. I mean, if I come in handing the doctor a cookbook, they'll say, hey, do you follow this? <laughs> that's about it. So, you know, others may experience this. Uh, maybe some of the uh, clinicians listening to this are sort of squirming a little. They don't like this kind of talk because they always ask people what they eat and drink. You know, kudos to you. But my experience is that not, that's not what's happening. Is I ask patients what they eat and drink, they look at me like I have 17 heads on because they've never heard these questions before. That's interesting. Um, so taking it back to the PPI use, uh, which patients would qualify for PPIs? Right. So there, there's excellent literature on this. So a classic proton pump inhibitor would be Prilosec or Omeprazole. A classic H2 blocker, uh, there are not a lot of them these days, but one of the more popular ones is uh, Pepsid or Famotidine. Uh, one is uh, the H2 blocker is much weaker than the uh, average proton pump inhibitor. But first, this is where we get back to symptoms. If someone's coming in with abdominal pain, severe heartburn, and they get an endoscopy, and an ulcer is seen, either uh, a stomach ulcer, uh, esophageal ulcer, then generally it's accepted that a proton pump inhibitor therapy is, is indicated. And there are numerous studies that show it's particularly effective for inducing healing and having a lower relapse rate uh, with erosive esophagitis, uh, proton pump inhibitors being uh, far better than placebo and uh, also better than H2 blockers. So that's for a very specific indication, right? We're talking about someone who's found to have an ulcer or erosions on endoscopy. Now, sometimes, and this is the scary part, sometimes patients have symptoms, but very often as ear, nose, and throat doctors, we don't see patients that come in with abdominal symptoms, right? Usually abdominal symptoms get to the gastroenterologist first. We see patients with throat symptoms, cough, throat clearing, hoarseness, post-nasal drip, maybe some wheezing. 
And we send them for an endoscopy. And initially, when we started doing this years and years ago, we got a lot of pushback from our patients. They would say, well, I, I don't have... I don't have heartburn. I'm just hoarse. And I would say, yes, but, you know, the reason is when acid comes up from the stomach into the esophagus after repeated exposure, the tissues in the lower esophagus by the stomach start to swell. When tissues swell, they become numb or less sensitive, so you don't feel anything right? And what we tell our patients, if you haven't been treated and your heartburn miraculously goes away, don't start high-fiving everyone. Get to the doctor because that means you've basically seared your insides and you've lost sensitivity. Uh, People will say we're overstating the case. Uh, That's too dramatic, but that's what happens. So now you're seeing, depending on the findings, depending on your symptoms, and you could be asymptomatic. In other words, all you can have is just the throat symptoms we were talking about. And there's some excellent, excellent studies, first in 2004, then in 2010, that show in the gastrointestinal literature that showed that throat symptoms better predict esophageal cancer than traditional heartburn and regurgitation symptoms. So we consider throat symptoms alarm symptoms for serious gastroesophageal pathology. And when indeed serious gastroesophageal pathology is found, then treatment with a proton pump inhibitor, the uh, American College of Gastroenterology, or the ACG, generally gives a strong recommendation for an eight-week course of proton pump inhibitor therapy for the initial management of erosive esophagitis in terms of healing and symptom control. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's a good point. Um, so do you think long-term use of PPIs or H2 blockers would cause more harm than good? H2 blockers and PPIs must be separated. Uh, the typical proton pump inhibitor will suppress 80% of acid production for anywhere from 12 to 16 hours, or the typical H2 blocker will suppress about 40% of acid for about four hours. So the, the typical PPI is anywhere from 400 to 500% stronger than an H2 blocker. Uh, I've heard in numerous GI meetings over the years that uh, most gastroenterologists, and I would agree with them, think that an H2 blocker is like a glass of milk, uh, whereas the proton pump inhibitor is a very, very powerful medication and a completely different strength profile. And that's why almost all the studies that, and they're observational studies, right? They're not controlled studies, but this is where the the problems creep in and it makes it into the mainstream press. And then you're dealing with some very, very confusing messages that long-term use of a proton pump inhibitor can lead to problems. However, for the indications we just talked about, erosive esophagitis, peptic ulcer disease, severe unrelenting heartburn, these patients will do much, much better with a six- to eight-week course of 
proton pump inhibitor treatment. But that may represent a very, very small percentage of certainly what ear, nose, and throat doctors see. Less than 10% of our patients have heartburn, and very often we don't see any findings on endoscopy, uh, meaning on, on upper GI endoscopy. So the indication for use of a proton pump inhibitor to see how the patient responds, I don't like that approach. There's really no science behind that approach. There is science behind doing an endoscopy, finding an ulcer and then tr- or an erosion and then treating it with a proton pump inhibitor. But what invariably happens is people come in with throat symptoms, they don't get an endoscopy, and they're immediately put on a proton pump inhibitor. They feel better uh, if there is a, a, a gastroesophageal reflux component, right? And uh, next thing you know, seven, eight years pass, and they're still on it. No one's ever looked in their esophagus, stomach, or duodenum, so we don't know what's going on. And this is where the problems arise. So I could tell you that in my practice, the only patients that are on proton pump inhibitors are the few that have either esophageal cancer or precancer or some sort of in, in the middle of some sort of treatment for that or patients with severe unrelenting heartburn who've been evaluated, and we'll get to evaluated and what that means in a moment. So the group that, that is currently on proton pump inhibitors is very, very, very small. The group on H2 blockers is, is a little larger, and I'll give you a, a real-life example. Every time someone drinks coffee, they feel a touch of heartburn, and then it goes away. They don't like that little feeling. They don't want to stop their coffee. So what do we do? We say, well, take 20 milligrams of, of famotidine, then have your cup of coffee. Uh, so take it beforehand um, if you're feeling that type of symptom. So that's a, a very acceptable use of an H2 blocker. But they're so weak that they don't cause the problems that proton pump inhibitors are, say, are said to cause. Mm-hmm. All right. So then how long are PPIs indicated for use? And what's the next step in treatment if they do not work? So when, when people, when patients have erosive esophagitis or peptic ulcer disease, eight weeks of a proton pump inhibitor is accepted treatment by the American College of Gastro Guidelines. And then often a re-exam is indicated. Now, this is where it gets tricky. If someone doesn't have GI symptoms, right, and it's found in an asymptomatic individual and they're treated, because you can't follow if they're doing, quote-unquote, well, because they never had symptoms to begin with, how are you going to follow it? So the only way to follow and ensure that treatment happened is to take another look. As far as what's the next step if PPIs don't work, don't work will define as people have persistent symptoms. What I would then move on to is something called an esophageal workup. What that means is let's look at the physiologic functioning of the stomach and esophagus. There are two basic tests that are used. One is called high-resolution manometry, which looks at how the esophagus moves or the motility of the esophagus. And if there are 
abnormal pressure gradients across the upper and lower esophageal sphincters. The lower esophageal sphincter is right at the stomach junction. The upper esophageal sphincter is right at the throat esophagus junction. So sometimes those muscles don't relax or contract properly. Sometimes the esophagus doesn't move properly. We call it esophageal dysmotility, meaning the esophagus is is moving poorly or slowly. Normally, it takes one to three seconds for food to traverse between the throat and the stomach, but sometimes it's delayed, and if it's delayed, that can cause a lot of symptoms for the patient, so there are often pharmaceutical options to try and move the esophagus along. Sometimes there are surgical solutions, not for moving the esophagus along, but if there's failure of relaxation of one of the sphincters, there's a whole series of of options available. The point is, the the broad view is, if someone's not responding and the proton, proton pump inhibitor class are so effective, but if someone's having persistent GI symptoms, in particular, we like to get an assessment of how the esophagus is functioning. Occasionally, we need to look at see how the stomach is functioning. If the stomach is not emptying properly, saying it's just sitting there for hours and hours, normally the stomach takes three to four hours to empty, but maybe the stomach is taking five or six hours to empty. And you can imagine if you're having a meal and you're used to lying down two to three hours after your last meal and you lie down and the stomach is 60 to 70% full, you take away the effects of gravity and everything comes up the wrong way. So an assessment of function of the esophagus and or stomach is generally indicated if people are not responding to your initial pharmaceutical approaches. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And so we talked a little bit about the diagnostic challenges before, but what other kind of challenges exist regarding the treatment of GERD? The biggest problem with GERD is getting the clinicians to recognize the importance of pepsin in this equation, which we started the discussion with. Asking people what they eat and drink is something I can't emphasize enough because our reflex, and I see this all the time, all the voice and swallowing specialists at ENT and Allergy Associates and around the United States and the world of academia and really around the world, we're very used to seeing patients come in on loads and loads of uh, proton pump inhibitors, which was popular 10 to 15 years ago, before greater and greater attention to diet and lifestyle changes uh, were being emphasized. And now uh, there are you know, numerous ways to use diet and lifestyle to help, and we could talk about that in a moment. So the greatest challenge is changing the approach, asking people what they eat and drink. And here, patients can also help by, ask, by telling their doctors what they eat and drink. So once that's established, there are a lot of things that can be done so that foods that I mentioned earlier that are somewhat restricted can still be used, but we do things to neutralize its acidity. I'll give you an example. One of my uh, favorite smoothies from the Acid Watcher cookbook, it's an anti-inflammatory smoothie called the Orange Cream smoothie. 
Uh, think of an orange Julius. A yummy drink from the days of yore, not terribly healthy. Very acidic, very inflammatory. Well, you can take a mandarin or an orange or a tangerine, throw it in a blender, and add a cup of non-dairy milk. I use the acronym OSCAR, O-S-C-A-R. What does that stand for? Oat, soy, coconut, almond, rice. Don't go looking for Oscar milk. You'll never find Oscar milk, but this is the acronym, right? And, or cashew or macadamia. But the point is, if you add a cup of non-dairy milk to your orange, add a banana, add flax meal, which are crushed flax seeds, and some ice, you'll have a delicious anti-inflammatory beverage that has the full flavor of orange without the acidity. The frontier of acid neutralization through food, through altering food science, I believe is going to be one of the big frontiers in the management of gastroesophageal reflux disease, laryngopharyngeal reflux disease, and our obsession with putting acidic things in our mouth. Great. Thank you again so much for speaking with me today and answering all my questions. It's been my pleasure, and thank you so much for allowing me the opportunity to introduce the concept of diet and lifestyle-based approaches to treat a disease that affects 75 million Americans and 1 billion people worldwide.